Hello and welcome to Gravitas Wins Conversations. I draw a lot of inspiration from today's guest. You will not find another person with her energy, enthusiasm and wide experience. I hope you will enjoy the conversation as much as I would do. Hello Amy, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me Joseph. I really appreciate it. Okay. Let's start with this uh, Amy. What's the secret of your energy? How do you manage your energy? I think the secret of my energy is being free, feeling free. So that is that's like waking up every every day with a beginner mind mm-hmm. and starting starting fresh all the time and mm. not having not having things weigh on me like peer pressure, guilt, shame. As much as I can, I try to get rid of those and feel like I'm starting the day new, starting the day fresh and um I have you know possibilities ahead of me and i i think like when i feel like my energy goes down is more like if i feel like i've got all these pressures or i've got peer pressure or shame or i have to do something for someone so as much as i can i try to be in the position where i'm doing things for people cuz i want to not because they're guilting me and just remove a lot of those things that tend to weigh us down so you said the peer pressure you don't have a peer pressure is it only now or you have always been not having that peer pressure yeah that's a great question i was super lucky i mean lucky and unlucky that i had a, a you know not the best upbringing and so i didn't ever have that connection that you get with your parents where they kind of like trade social you know they trade connection for you doing certain things mm. and then you learn you kind of learn peer pressure initially from your parents and then from kids at school and things like that and so um they just there just wasn't that trade happening um okay. it just was a different type of it was a little more of a distance kind of upbringing and so i just never got that trade and then i ended up going to uh one school for 7th and 8th grade then another school for 9th and 10th and another for 11th and 12th so i never really i didn't get to know people so much that um you know that they would then have this influence over me so then i kind of got into college and i hadn't really experienced peer pressure yet and i guess it never really <laughs> stuck after that i just i didn't get trained initially when people do not have a uh, great parents and they have they don't have a great childhood they somehow develop negative mindset a victim mindset and how did you get out of that uh, did you go through any therapy i mean how did you get out of that yeah i think i think you're right i mean i think that can that can definitely be something a direction you can go and i had other friends that were also having difficult experiences and they did go they did go in that in that direction um i think I think yeah for me I did I did I did some therapy I also had some really good friends and mm. I I noticed how other people were interacting with people and some people were like I would be very reactionary to things people would say or assume the worst etc and I saw my one friend just was like super chill about stuff and she she had really good parents and so I said to her will you kind of observe me and if you notice me doing things that don't seem like normal interaction can you just kind of let me know so i can train myself so 
that was the the main thing was just kind of that I had a couple friends. And again, this beginner mindset where I said, this isn't the way I want to be. I want to be like that. So I'll just copy that. <laughs> uh, what do you what do you mean by beginner's mindset? And also like for the career that you have had, and then we will talk uh, more about that as well. How do you manage to have that beginner's mindset? Because you have experience working with a lot of people and different industries as well. So amidst all of that experience, I'm assuming you would want to draw upon that experience, but also have a beginner's mindset. How do you balance that two things? So, so I'll give you an example. Um, mm -hmm. Well into my career, I was working at a hedge fund and responsible for billions of dollars. We were long, we were short, it, you know, just very high pressure situation. It's perfect situation to like rest on all of your past experience. And there yep. was a company and they came in and they said to me, we are going to, we're basically jealous of these other companies that have, that, that, that effectively like have higher valuations because they're saying they have this types of software and we make those too. It's just people aren't aware of them. We have those capabilities. So we're going to break out that, that division into a separate unit and then it'll help our valuation. And I said, look, I think this is a huge mistake because, you know, just stick to your knitting, do what you've always done. This, this whole internet thing, this was in 2000. I was like, you know, it's a bubble. It's going to blow over. Just kind of stick to what you're doing and you're, you're going to survive all this. And they were like, ah, oh, you know, what do you know? We just came through New York to tell you what we're going to do. So then they go off and start reporting this second business unit. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and so I kind of, I'm like, this is the beginner mind because I'm like, mm. revenues is just simply price times quantity. Mm. So I was thought, well, okay, it's brand new type of software. I should see what I think demand's going to be like. I'm going to go talk to some consultants, talk to some customers. Couldn't find any consultants that had ever seen the software. Couldn't find any customers. And so here's the beginner mind again, where I'm, you know, at one of the top hedge funds and I'm kind of like, I don't understand how you have revenue when you don't have customers. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. people are like, oh, Emmy, it's very complicated. You don't understand. And I'm like, no, it's revenue is P times Q. Like it's that simple. And that's a beginner mind, right? Mm. And fast forward uh, four months. Um, the CFO and CEO admitted that they had been uh, making up the revenue numbers and they both went to jail. Mm. And so it's like, it's not, you know, deep, complex work. It's really just super simple. And that's where a lot of people miss it. And that was the same thing that I did in semiconductors, you know, betting the getting out at the top getting back in at the bottom was like super simple concepts like that, because a lot of times you can offset all of the emotion that's happening in markets, in business by just sticking to very simple concepts. Okay. So what I'm hearing from <clears throat> the way you dealt with your childhood and this particular situation that you talked about is that you peel off all the layers of complexity and go down to the essential concept, like what you said, 
uh, uh, revenue is just a P into Q. And if I want to be a better person, just observe whoever was that better person and reflect it. Yeah. So it seems like you kind of peel off all the layers of complexity and go down to the basic essential concept and then build up from there. Yeah, yeah. Even okay. a, an interview that I did, I was interviewing for, for a job and and the guy says to me, what makes stocks go up? Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's wanting some long, but the truth <laughs> is that stocks go up because there's more buyers than sellers of that stock. Mm. So I said more yeah. buyers than sellers. And he's like, no, really. And I'm like, no, really. That's it. That's, That's it. it. <laughs> a bunch of other things drive whether there's more buyers and sellers, but the reason the stock goes up is more buyers than sellers. And so, yes, it's the beginner's mind that takes you to that one core thing, but it's the years of experience that help you define what that one core thing is. Mm, that's good. So you talked about that fund manager, and I believe that you were managing the number one performing fund in the world at some point in time. 1999, but, yeah. Yeah, but you didn't start there or you didn't come there at all. You started as a horse trainer. So tell yeah. me about that. How was that unconventional career that you had from horse trainer to managing the top uh, performing fund in the world? And, you know, there's a there's a there's a thread that runs through all of this, which uh -huh. is that the childhood could be a negative or it can be a positive. Mm -hmm. And so what I, what happened with my childhood is I came out of it overly sensitive. Mm. And that's very handy if you're in the stock market and you're trying to read the tea leaves of management and see if they're losing confidence or seeing if they're getting more anxious. And I could like you know, I had antennas up all the time. So, um, mm. you know, it turned out to be super helpful. And it's the same with horses. I can get on horses and I can sense how they're feeling, how they're doing. And um, yeah, so I just, I, when I was in college, I rode in the Junior Olympics and was a team gold medalist and wanted to keep pursuing that. And so I moved to Seattle. I worked actually um, as a litigation paralegal during the day and then rode horses at night and on the weekends, trained with a guy that had trained two, basically half the U.S. team and half the Canadian team were his students. He was such a good trainer. Um, and so I was training with him and then my mother passed away and I thought, and I was working in this kind of law firm and I thought, I'll just be closer to family and I'll go to San Diego and become a horse trainer. So that's that's what I did and um, just was closer with my family as everyone was grieving um, my mother's passing. So then my horse trainer, when I was 25, basically said, you're in your mid-20s and you won't have the same opportunities in your mid-30s. So he said, and he had already asked me years before if he could kind of be my life guide because he felt my parents weren't super interested. And um, and so, so he just basically said, I want you to go to graduate school in something, face all your opportunities, and if you still want to be a horse trainer, then I'll support you, but not by default. So then I applied to all these schools and everything like that. And <laughs> and the only one that let me in was USC and thank God. Cause he doesn't really, he basically thinks like he's German and he says, you will apply to these. And next time I come down six weeks later, you'll tell me which one you're in. 
he doesn't understand that, you know, applications have a season and all this mm. stuff. So I was lucky that when he said it, it was right during application season. So mm. next time he came down, I could say, yes, I've applied and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, so it was really funny. So then I got into USC MBA and, and I told him that I'm going to business school. And he goes, oh, that's horrible. That's not what I meant. He goes, I wanted to do philosophy or something, you know, the, to better the world. He's like, we don't need another business person. That was really funny. Um, and then uh, I had made a bunch of money in the stock market in college and then kind of had let, let it, you know, I was kind of more my dad was running it or this or that. And my mother had passed away anyway. And and so the the balance effectively went down for various reasons. And I've, I've shared it on Twitter and stuff, but I won't go into too much detail to the point where I entered USC $30,000 in debt with a 30, with a horse. And so I sold the horse for 30,000 and I, and I went to the head of the brokerage firm and I said, can I just run this? I know that your margin requirements are 30%, but the, the exchange is 50. So can I run this at a 50% margin? Mm. Mm. The 30 from the horse is my equity and then your 30 of debt. So effectively 60,000. And I and invested it while I was going to school. They had a Bloomberg there at school. I took the 60, turned it into 120 in six months. It was just the beginning of a up cycle after a recession. I was investing in small cap, which runs the most. So I kind of had the wind at my, you know, at my back. And then I paid off the 30, had 90, and then went on from there. So my girlfriend that I had just met at grad school, she's like, you know, there's people that would pay you to do that. <laughs> and I had never really even considered a career in investing. You know, I just thought like, and I said, really, this is like playing Pac-Man. I would love to do that. And um, mm. that's what got me into the industry. Completely random. Fantastic. Yeah, completely random. Uh, do you believe in luck? Oh, yes. And I'd far rather be lucky than smart. <laughs> That's a very good quote. That's a very good quote. Uh, in, in LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, you talk a lot about writing your own future or following your own path. And it seems like that is what you have done. And you have kind of navigated through all the difficulties in life, but also rided upon, if I may use the word, uh, the, the opportunities that came along your way. Uh, and you also gave an example of one of your mentees. Uh, he was all uh, joined in our elite university. He joined the Goldman Sachs. And then one day he joined the seminary. I have two questions in that particular thing from your own experience as your life experience, as well as as a coach uh, experience. One, generally, as, as a career, how should I think about writing our own future? And as a parent, how do I enable that with my kids? What, what should be my, how should I treat them so that they get that particular thing that they can create their own future? Yeah. So I'm going to go in a totally different direction. I'm going to answer your question, but in a different way. Okay. Most of AI, which AI is super interesting because it's trying to copy what our brains do, right? Mm -hmm. These neural networks and everything like that. So most of AI is heading towards an objective and trying to minimize errors towards that objective. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a lot how we live our lives, a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And that's not truly being who we really could be. So mm. there's so this this guy who's the head of OpenAI, Dr. Kenneth O. Stanley, um, invented when he was in a, a university in Florida, invented something called novelty search. And most of these algorithms for these AI have been around forever. They've been around 20 years, 25 years, but novelty search is newer and different. And what he basically told the computer to do is that every step you take should be something new, should be trying something new. And, okay. and you can imagine that if you do the search area unlimited, the computer will never have an answer because mm. it's always something new. But if you, but what they found is when you have kind of a, some borders on the search area, it can come up, it can complete a maze four times as fast. It can learn to walk four times as fast. And if you think about it, when you're just learning to walk, one of the most important things is to be able to do this, which is oscillate. Mm -hmm. right? The way you learn to oscillate is by falling over. So if you're trying to mi minimize your errors, you punish the robot for falling over and the robot never learns to walk. Mm -hmm. And so I try to live my life like that novelty search algorithm. Not an unlimited expanse, but trying new things, being open, having this beginner mind. And so with that, then everything that comes along, I have a general idea. So for novelty search, they say you are trying to get to the moon. So you give a big thing that you want, not okay. explore the whole universe. So you have some kind mm. of goal, but it's a, it's a big goal or it's like explore DNA in the area of cancer. And then it can come back and say, hey, I found all these patterns in RNA. Hey, I found all this stuff. The same way that when the US had the goal to go to the moon, we had this huge like spate of innovations because, and it wasn't that we were pushing ourselves to innovate and learn new technologies, but we had to because we were trying to get to the moon. So with anything that I'm thinking about with a career, I'm thinking I generally want to be doing this type of work with these types of people. And I'm open to how that looks. I'm open to what the different paths might be to that goal. Mm. So what you are saying is define a broad contour, but within it, try to do novel things. Try to yeah. do newer things in, in every iteration exactly. that you are working on instead of mm. trying to minimize your errors all the time mm. don't worry so much about making mistakes um try worry more about being open-minded and trying new things especially that, early in your career that's a very well articulated position emmy and some of us probably do in in one fashion or the other or one element of that but when you combine all the three having a broad contour Try new things. Do not try to eliminate all the errors. I think when you combine all of the three, I think it is inevitable that you will have that kind of a career. Or it is inevitable that you will have that kind of a life, interesting life. Yeah. And your own path, your own path. Okay. Yeah. So and if, like if that, you want to play with this, he actually has a game online 
where you can mm -hmm. try out the novelty search algorithm by playing a game that breeds pictures to each other. It's called Pick Breeder, P I C Breeder.org. Okay. And you can play with this. And what they found is that all the other algorithms that basically look at an objective and, and minimize errors are good at incremental improvements. Mm. This algorithm mirrors innovation and evolution. Mm. Well, mm. if you want to do something interesting and big and different, and you want to change something, you don't want to be living your life objective focus, minimizing errors. Very valid uh, point. And every time I talk to you, I learn something new. And we have talked only for about 15 minutes or so, and I've learned something new already. Thanks, Emi, <laughs> for that. <laughs> uh, while when we talked earlier, you talked about showing up for success. I've replayed it in my mind multiple times. So we're talking about bodybuilding. Yeah. And um, this is a little bit, I'm going to back up for a second because a lot of it has to do with this beginner mindset again. Mm -hmm. which is that I was basically started the year where my, I was planning on doing a marathon in Maui. Um, I had already invited my step stepdaughter, but, but then my girlfriend, my other girlfriend was like, Hey, you did a 50 K for your 50th last year. I want to do one for my 50th this year. Will you come do the 50 K? They were a week apart. So I thought, I don't want to let my stepdaughter down. So I thought, okay, this could be an interesting experiment. And this is like turning things around instead of saying, oh, I'm pressured because I got to do a 50K one weekend and then fly to Hawaii and run a marathon. I think, oh, this is a great experiment at staying in my peak state for an entire week. And, you know, I've read about that. I'd love to see if I can do it. And mm -hmm. um, so then that went really well. So then I thought, well, what other 50Ks are out there? And I signed up for all, I thought I would just do a, an entire spring of like mountain 50Ks. So I was going, you know, Jackson Hole and anyway, just all these mountain 50Ks. And the only thing with doing that when I'm at the time I was 51 years old is that you have to stay pretty disciplined about your training schedule so you don't get injured. So in that, I was um, basically doing sprints every Tuesday, hill repeats Monday, Thursday, that kind of thing, right? Really a little regimented for my style, but, but that's what I needed. And my sprints start going really well. So I thought, well, it's not like I'm going to get any younger. So I should see if there's some kind of sprint competition I should enter. You know, why not? I've always, you know, wanted to try track and field. Why not? And so um, so I looked it up and there's not a lot of people that are in their mid 50s that decide to go try track and field. So you don't even have to like qualify. You can just go to the U.S. Masters Championship for the United States. I was like, well, that's really cool. And it happened to be in San Diego. See, better lucky than smart. So, and it was about five weeks away. So I go on the internet and sign up for it and then go find a coach to teach me how to run off blocks. Cause I didn't know that, you know, look at the different pieces of what I got to do and who can help me learn how to do it. So I'm thinking, well, I'm going to this U S masters championship anyway. I wonder what else they have. And I see they've got bodybuilding and I thought, well, you know, not that I really ever wanted to do it, but I thought, you know, uh, it's probably 85% overlap with the workouts I'm going to be doing. You know, one, I'm going to try to make my legs big. The other, I'm going to try to make my legs explosive. Yeah, you know, close enough. So, so I call that guy and apparently I have to hire a pose coach and I don't know, <laughs> pay a lot of money for like bikinis that are about this big. 
and, uh, you know, go on a diet, all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, so I figured, figured all that out and I signed up for everything. Cause I asked the organizer and he said, well, you know, you've never competed, so you can do age group open amateur, you know, you could do everything. And, and, you know, and I didn't know the difference between physique figure and bikini. So I signed up for all of those, you know, just the whole lot of them and uh, figured just, you know, I had to pay to get my body spray tanned seven times over and pay for makeup and hair and all that. So this way I'm amortizing them over kind of more walks down the stage. Um, and anyway, so I show up and they basically said nobody had showed up for women's physique. Um, so I ended up winning the North American champion just by showing up. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that showing up mentality that, you know, I'm here, let me try everything that I can try, get my hand on and I can amortize whatever that I have put in, the effort, money, all of that into all of the different competitions that are in the stage now, that particular mindset, have you applied anywhere else? Oh, pretty much everywhere. I, I, I just think most of the time I figure I don't really know what I'm doing, but you know, I, I try to figure, okay, so somebody brought me up there, so I'm just going to give it my best. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much, um, you know, that, for instance, even when I, so when I was running, when I got the, the fun to run, mm -hmm. I came out of an insurance company. Um, so I was just kind of running internal money for an insurance company. This mutual fund company hired me to be a tech analyst for a mid cap portfolio manager. And then the chief investment officer said, well, now that we have you and you're so good at tech, we should make a tech fund. And what we'll do is we'll take all the people in the whole firm that are focused on tech, like the people in Asia focus on tech and whatever, and we'll all get you guys into a room and you'll pick the best stocks. Right. And then, and then it's going to be this, and it's going to be great. Well, I mean, that's kind of like management by consensus. And so then about a month in, we were top 10% in the nation and she calls a meeting and she's like, what in the world is wrong? And I'm like, I think it's good. Top 10%. Awesome. She's like, no, I hired you because you're the smartest tech analyst in the country. You should be number one. Mm. I said, well, number one doesn't happen from consensus. It just doesn't. So she said, fine, everybody else out, you run the fund. And that's how I got the fund. But I didn't, I wasn't in there kind of, I don't know, trying to get the fund. I was just kind of standing in my truth, just saying, you can't get to number one with consensus. With I mean, it's just not going to happen. And then the next thing what? I know, I'm running the thing. And then I'm thinking what, I don't know anything about, you know, running a public mutual fund. And then I thought, well, that's, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> she, she thought <laughs> I could do it. So I'm just going to go do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, as I said, uh, Amy, uh, even this podcast that I'm doing is a result or a derivative of talking to you earlier. Uh, when we had one-on-one -on -one conversation earlier is when you shared that particular thing and I was looking at what are all the things that coaches do, what are the things that I can do. One of the things that came up was podcast and I said, you know, I can't do this. Uh, my voice is not good or whatever. Like, you know, there are tons of reasons why you can't do that. I said, Emmy said, show up for success. Just, just <laughs> sign up. 
So, so I said, okay, I will sign up for, I, I looked at who are all the people who are interviewing people? How are they doing it? I will mimic, mimic it. And I signed up for a software and here we are. This is the 25th episode that I'm doing. That's so, so awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for, you know, sharing that particular story and inspiring. I'm, I'm sure other people have inspired as well, but at least you inspired me to do this. So thank oh, you very thank much you. for this. Yeah, sometimes people take it a little bit too far. I, I have one mentee and like I've been running for so long, I kind of have a base, right? And I yeah, know yeah. what shoes I like and whatever. So some some days I'll just have good energy and I'll, you know, I've been running maybe eight miles a day, something like that. And someday I'll come out and I'll have a free day and I'll just start running and I'll run 30 miles. I won't have planned it. I just start running. And then if I need more water, I stop at a gas station, get some water. And, you know, I just some days and just wander around and then I've clocked 30 miles. Anyway, so so he goes, so he gets some brand new tennis shoes and he's like, yeah, I just went out to just run. He's like, he goes, 15 miles in, I couldn't walk at all. He goes, I had to go to the doctor, the podiatrist, my shins were wrecked. I'm like, well, yeah. So there's some combination of building a base and building some fundamental understanding of what you're going to do. And then yeah. some of just like having a beginner mindset for sure. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind uh, whenever I try out a new experiment. <laughs> uh, okay, you are probably because of the fund that you ran, uh, you have worked with some of the top leaders, both from corporates as well as uh, probably in politics as well, politics as well, like John Chambers of Cisco, Martha Stewart, name it. The, the, the people are, you have worked with all of them yeah and you have and I, I think at ross one point Perot, ross perot and yeah yeah, yeah. And, then and paul volker who was the ex-fed chairman um yeah, yeah and then i've directly worked for four billionaires as well yeah and then i think at one one time you also shared a stage with bill clinton i suppose or yes. or you were yeah right uh in working with all of these leaders what did you learn about leadership from them and what are the qualities of a great leader? I hate to keep harping on this, Joseph, but they question themselves. I just mm. wrote I just wrote a big piece on, you know, and, and questioning yourself goes back to that beginner mindset. Could I be wrong? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's a huge one is just this beginner mindset questioning themselves. And I wouldn't say it's all of them, but some of them have incredible listening skills. Mm. And the listening skills gives you connection to people with power and gives you influence, which is a common trait among leaders and billionaires. So that listening, and I, we can go deeper into each of those things as well, uh, but I want to go into that listening because you also talked a lot about that listening, uh, uh, active listening, perceptive listening. What are they and how can I develop my listening skills? So it's it's funny because it's so simple. Mm -hmm. There's there's a few tricks. Um, one I call what not why. So whenever okay. you ask a question, try to ask it with the word what at the front of it instead of why. 
Often when mm. we say why, we ask someone why, they go into explaining mode and very quickly they'll go into a defensive posture. Mm. So if the goal of listening is to build a connection with another person, what is a much better, of course, you can be like, what in the world were you thinking and make someone feel defensive. But in general, what is really, is a great word to use. So I think that's mm -hmm. really key. Second is pause 15 to 30 seconds and really count one, 1,000 to 1,000. So someone's talking, you think they're done. Just let there be a moment of silence. And they often, mm -hmm. I found when I was talking to management teams, that would be the moment where they would share the real nugget. Mm. That's the moment where you're showing someone you're creating space for them. Mm. And the third is something that I call almost like hopscotch. Two down, one across. So when asking a follow-up question, some you, you say... Um, what's your favorite vacation? And then I say, mm -hmm. St. John. And then mm -hmm. you say, why St. John? You know, what is it about St. John that you really love? Oh, I love s swimming in St. John. Mm. Now, if you keep going down one more, well, who did you swim with? Right. And now it's a little personal. Mm. So what you do is you've gone down, we've gone down to what's your favorite vacation? What do you like about St. John? Now I've said swimming. Now you go across, you go adjacent and you say, have you always swam? Mm. Often when people go down too, they think, oh, now I'm feeling like this is too personal or too, and they exit, they switch, they switch top. They go, oh, what are you doing next weekend? And then the person feels dropped or unheard. But if they go down one more deeper, the person feels like, you know, start. And so if you're trying to build that bridge of connection, thinking about two down, one across is really helpful to feel like you care. You're asking follow ups. And I've, I've done this in seminars and people that have never met before. Ninety seconds in, it seems like they've known each other forever. There's, there's a very good uh, master class, I think, for a podcast uh, host. I think I should listen to this and try to practice this as much as possible, I think. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing that particular thing. Uh, now, like a couple of last questions, uh, Yemi. Uh, we have been uh, talking for about 40 minutes. It doesn't look like that it's we spoke fun. for 40 minutes. That's fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You don't seem to slow down. And you said you ran the marathon and you you participated in all of those sports events when you were 51. Do you think, you know, we should retire the concept of retirement? Oh, absolutely. In fact, <laughs> there was a new study out this year that said that our metabolism is the same from age 20 to age 60. So there is no oh. reason. It's not like we start slowing down and we get worse from 40 to 50. We're just all telling ourselves that. And, and like, if you, if you mentally slow down and you physically slow, you'll slow down. So, you know, they, they actually, they had a different study where they took a group of people that were in their eighties that were on walkers and all this stuff. And they put them in a kind of a closed residence where everyone moved into houses and stuff. And they lived there for three months. 
and they mm-hmm. put newspapers in from 20 years before and TV shows from 20 years before. And people were moving around. They stopped using their walkers. I mean, it's an incredible study. It is an incredible study. So there's so much about this that is in your mind. Um, This Mm. year, uh, let's see, in January of 2022, I'm going to run another 50K because the same girlfriend that we did it when she was 50, she wants to run it again. Um, So we're going to do that together. And then another girlfriend of mine who's really never exercised in her life, except for just light walking, We've decided to, oh, I talked her into doing the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is 35,000 vertical feet and 85 miles of hiking in nine days. And then I talked two other girlfriends. So they're 57, 55, 60, and myself, I'm 55. We're all going to do the Tour de Mont Blanc next year. You are an evil person. (laughs) It is never too late. Never too late. Thank you. I'm going to challenge. Of course, I think. So how do you, Amy, you talked about the beginner's mindset and then like this 55 people, 55 age, uh, 55, 57, they're all doing it. But you also talked about the one of your mentee picked up the tennis shoes, ran, he injured himself. How should we think about that balance? That yes, at 57, I can do it. 55, I can do it. But also not fatal. Not injuring you gotta be ready. Yeah, exactly. You got to get yourself ready. And that's where I was talking about. Have a beginner mindset, but build a foundation. So mm. my girlfriend said, she's like, I want to do that. That sounds great. But you need to give me a training plan. Mm. And I said, great, let's train together. And so I built out a training plan. It's a one year training plan. We do hill repeats on Wednesdays. We do long hikes on Sundays. And we're going to do that for 50 weeks. Mm. Um, And then, you know, towards later on, we'll have multiple days of hill repeats. Um, So, you know, by the time she goes, she will have be she'll be climbing 4000 feet a couple times a week. So then, you know, going and doing that in Switzerland will be fine. So that's, I mean, anyway, that's kind of, it's just that I think the point that the the reason that I'm able to just like learn a bunch of languages and do a bunch of sports at a high level is because what people don't realize is it's not that much more effort. Once you've done one thing well, like once I had had competed in the World Cup trials for the U.S. for dressage, I realized what, like I learned how to learn how to be excellent mm. at sport. And then mm. I could. And so then I asked myself the same questions and found the same experts in endurance running. And then I did the same thing in track and field and the same thing in bodybuilding. It's like, okay, who do I need? What are the elements that I need? And how do I put this together? And how do, how do I get my body ready? And I think a lot of people just get so overwhelmed. They just think, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to be this, you know, unattainable thing. And they don't realize it's just like 10% more effort. Mm. So you talked about two things and I want to touch upon it before we forget. You talked about learning to learn and you have applied it it seems that you have applied it across the different areas in your life, whether it is horse training or running a management fund, uh, the, the, the top uh, fund, or uh, marathon running, or for bodybuilding, or any of those kinds of So you have learned to learn. So that 
compress that to the fundamental core piece and also try to find out a training plan and building a base out of that. So that's that's one thing that you have done. Uh, can you go a little deeper into what is your learning plan looks like and how do you, what's your framework for learning? Have you ever seen those cats and they, they see a string, right? And they start uh-huh. pulling on the string mm-hmm. and the whole thing, the sweater is unraveling, but they're just yeah. pulling on the string. And that is the energy. I have this cu- energy of curiosity. I just keep pulling on the string. Mm. So for instance, I mean, the whole bodybuilding thing happened because I was pulling on a string. Mm. I was just training for, I was training for ultra marathons. I happened to be sprinting on Tuesdays. And then I was like, wow, that went really well. What else should I do? <laughs> like, mm. just like literally a curiosity of a cat and it's just going all of the time. If mm. I see a really interesting podcast or I see somebody do something really well that I don't know about, I think, well, how could I do that? Mm. And I think the differentiator is that I don't have some something in my mind saying, don't even try. I still mm. Have mm. An, I still have an imposter syndrome, like what I said, well, you know, I I mean, I didn't really like say, oh, I should have this fun to run or I should run, you know, I just kind of like, but I was available for it and I didn't say no. So kind of, I, I overcome my imposter by avoiding saying no. But my main thing is just a general curiosity of just kind of bumping around and what else can I do and what string, ooh, that's an interesting string. I'm going to pull on that, see what happens. That's pretty much, that's pretty much it. And that, and, you know, that takes you and like, you know, company says, here's our revenues. I'm, oh, that's an interesting string. I call Enron. Uh, somebody said, oh, this is a great company. You got to invest in them. This is 1996. And I call them up and, and I, and this is before you, before World Wide Web existed. And so you couldn't get a mm. annual report online. So you got to, they got to mail it to you. So I call them up and I say, can you mail me the annual report? And they said, which one? And I said, how many do you have? <laughs> they said five. And I was like, all for the same year? <laughs> they said, yes. I'm like, send them all. Mm. That's like a daily thing, right? Where it's just like, well, that's interesting. Tell me more, right? You're just pulling on a string. Like you have five annual reports. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> all for the same year? So it's like, it's these, and it even goes back to coach training where mm-hmm. the, coaches, the coach trainers say, we teach smart people to ask dumb questions. Mm. So if you're wondering how to instill curiosity and this endless energy, start by asking far simpler, far like ask the dumbest questions you can. Ask questions like, what's that like? What's next? It's far less work and you get, and everyone else starts doing all the work because <laughs> you, because yes. they have to answer everything. Fantastic. Uh, we can, we can keep on going, uh, Emmy. Uh, every time I ask you a question, I want to ask five follow-up questions and then I want to keep going in that, but, but we don't have time. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, final three questions. What's the kindest thing anyone has done for you? I have had so, so many people do so many kind things. Um, 
I mean, I've just, I feel incredibly blessed. Mm. I, my number one is that person that I mentioned, her name was Lori, that helped me reprogram my, my mind and my interactions with people in college. And that completely changed my life because that meant that I could learn to connect with people and have a more normal connected life instead of an isolated one. And that was all her. Mm. It's a lot of work. I'm, I'm, I mean, it was, it was two years of watching me and saying, okay, Emmy, you just won this. You should call your parents. You just did this. You should do, you know, just kind of like, here's how things, uh, here's how normal people interact just super patient and, you know, a long, it was a, it was a long haul for her and um, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing it. I think some of our friends play a larger role in our life without really thinking or without really realizing the magnanimity of that particular work that they have done in our life. So, so much, uh, so much. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's your definition of living a good life? Freedom, freedom of choice. Mm. Okay. Where can people find you online? They can find me anywhere they are. I'm everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can look at my10min.com. Emmysobieski.com is my own personal website. And then they can find me, Emmy Sobieski, on LinkedIn. Same handle on Twitter. And uh, same on Facebook, as well as my 10 men on Facebook. So, yeah, and small Instagram presence, but I, I don't recommend it. I'm not in there very often. Okay, I will uh, link to all of these things on the show notes. Uh, Amy, thank you very much for taking your time to talk to me. I think we need to have a follow-up session, uh, but we will schedule it later. Thank you very much it. for being here. I love it. Thank you so much for having me, Joseph. It's a pleasure, and you're a great host. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please share what you liked in our conversations on social media and tag us. Have a life of wins. <laughs>